We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Major General Christopher Donahue, commander of the 82nd Airborne's All-American Division, boarding a C-17 Globemaster at the uh, Hamad Karzai International Airport in Kabul on August 31st, uh, described as the final American paratrooper to depart Afghanistan. But there may be a problem. During the last hours of the evacuation, according to troops under Major General Donahue's command and documented by photographs and witness statements, Donahue ordered all of the passengers aboard that C-17 transport plane to disembark so he could have a souvenir loaded onto the plane. The souvenir, war trophy, one might say, was an inoperable Taliban-owned Toyota Helix with a fully operational Russian ZU-23 anti-aircraft autocannon mounted in the bed. Once the Helix was loaded, passengers were allowed back on the plane, but there wasn't room for as many that were on the plane previously. According to troops at the scene, at least 50 and perhaps as many as 100 people were left at the airport in Kabul to make room for the Helix. Oh, that is so sad. What what are you going to... Well, it's more than sad. That's a problem if that's true. Why don't we start there in our larger, as part of our larger discussion about uh, Afghanistan, particularly after all the generals testified before Congress last week. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano joins us now, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and his uh, latest book, Brutal War, Jungle Fighting in Papua New Guinea, 1942. Jim, thanks for joining us. What of Major General Donovan? Well, you know, I saw that story on on Twitter. And that's the kind of thing where you, I think we just have to wait for the, the investigation, the facts to come out. I mean, generals get investigated all the time, usually by the inspector general, which, and they actually had a special office in the inspector general for investigating generals. So I, I'm sure if this guy did something wrong, he, he will, because this is so high profile and the facts are probably pretty easy to prove one way or another. If what is being alleged is true, that is a major offense, is it not? Well, yeah, I'm not, look, I'm not going to speculate. because right. let's, let's just see what, what the facts are and what the context is. But what I think is important about the hearings is, and we didn't actually learn that much, is, and I'm not sure people, there's really kind of two baskets or three baskets of failures. One is what the president did. What the president did was make a lot of really bad decisions that, caused a lot of harm and suffering and, and sacrifice to U.S. national interest. That's all on him. And I think even though all the dots weren't necessarily connected in the hearing, I, I think that's incontrovertible. The, the second failure is the generals. And look, everybody understands that you want to be able for the president and his military advisors to speak in trust and confidence. We get that, right? So they can be frank and candid and everything else. 
But on the other side, what what they are not there to do is essentially to provide political cover for the president, his political decisions. And, and I really think they failed that, to do that balance in the hearings and just in general. I, I don't think they're competent. Um, I don't think they've served this country well. And I don't think they helped the American people really understand what happened in Afghanistan. Well, General McKinsey said that he advised President Biden to leave 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. Biden doesn't recall that. So either they're lying under oath or Biden's lying. Who is it? Yeah, that, and, and that's the kind of thing, the kind of evidence we really didn't get in the hearing is, is we really don't have a timeline. We really don't have the context. We really don't have who talked to who when. So we really don't have the, the connect the dots to really, you know, demonstrate because they could say, well, I told the president. Well, they, I didn't tell the president. I told the SECDEF and and the uh, so who knows. Right. But and that's the third failure, which is, look, the Congress really failed to do its job. These these hearings did not. You know, did not provide the kind of evidence to really understand what happened, why it happened you know, where we are and where we go from here. I, I really do think we need an independent commission for that. But, you know, there was, there was bipartisan kind of frustration with the, what happened in Afghanistan, but there was very, very partisan efforts to, to kind of put accountability. And the result of that is, is we never really got to, well, here's exactly what happened. Here's the timeline. Here's, here's the context of all the conversations. And so there's a lot that was left unsaid. Well, I, and I agree with all of that regarding the postmortem, but then there's also the urgency of now, to borrow a favorite phrase of the left. Uh, and the now is, do we yet have a handle on Americans trying to get out, legal permanent residents trying to get out, Afghan allies that we want to extract? Do we have a handle on what those numbers are and how we're doing no, and and it seems that the administration's priority, in, in a, like a lot of their crisis management, was not about addressing the issue, but kind of getting it off the news cycle so they could go back to focusing on their domestic agenda. I mean, I talked to other governments. I talked to people doing this on the ground. The U.S. government still doesn't really have a coherent strategy. They don't have a coherent effort. It does appear that they're continuing to talk to the Taliban, and I think they are cutting deals with the Taliban. But we don't know what kind of deals they're cutting. We don't know what kind of money is being transferred. Um, and we don't know what they're really doing. And I think at this point, even they understand that the Taliban are not redeemable. But they're just trying to buy enough Taliban cooperation to push this problem down the road a bit. Is there, uh, to your knowledge, are there still private missions happening? And if so, are they getting cooperation from the State Department? Well, there's, there's absolutely private efforts going on. Uh, there, there's several underground railroads in operation. It's kind of a race between the Taliban shutting them down and those guys getting people out. Um, they're largely funded by uh, private sector people, and there's bribes and, and stuff like that involved. Sure. Um, and uh, But the U.S. government doesn't appear to be the big player here. But, but I mean— well, well, right. I mean, it's it, they don't need to be a big player. They just need to let maybe some of these uh, special ops retirees and others involved in these private missions that when they were being more public a few weeks ago, do what they do and don't get in their way if they can get people out who need to get out for fear of their life. And, and that sort of leads to my other question, too, in terms of if you have an American, a legal permanent resident, Afghan allies murdered because of who they are, 
Are, are we even going to hear about it here? Um, well, we might or might not, but but I, I I think that that's a big part of the problem, and one of the reasons why this never gets off the the news cycle for the administration, which is um, American hostages are going to become really a coin of the realm as as it's readily apparent that cooperation between the Taliban and Americans and the and the West isn't really going to work. The value of hostages and hostage taking and trading for things is going to become more important for the Taliban and others. So I, I, I think that there's every expectation that, you know, we could see something like that in the future. You know, we just had this story where you know, Iran asked for $10 billion just to begin to talk to the United States. Look, this isn't a disparaging on culture in that part of the world, but this is the way these think, people do things. They're very, very transactional, and they trade for things. And if you're going to trade for something, you have to have something to trade. So there's a lot of value in hostage taking, and, and I still think that's a real possibility. Uh, with respect to uh, China, like scaling up our enemies here, uh, the, those uh, fighter jets that were over Taiwan over the weekend as, you know, another uh, provocation, another example of saber rattling by the CHICOMs, uh, you know, what are we to make of their posture with the United States as it re- relates to Taiwan against the backdrop of what we were just discussing with Afghanistan and with Iran? Yeah, well, it's really hard to tell from the the overflights, well, I mean, obviously they're for intimidation. And you could say, well, you know, also if you were going to do a precursor to an activity, um, you would do stuff like the Russians do this all the time. You do exercises, you do exercises, and then one day you just show up and don't leave. So um, could there be a bit of both in that? And the answer is, you know, sure, absolutely. Um, you know, China's not having a good day right now. They've got internal economic issues. Um, they've got en- real energy shortages, you know, the kind of Detroit line that, uh, um, you know, external events, you know, trying to use to distract from things. And that could be a possibility as well. So it's a real issue. I will say, you know, one of the areas where this administration is actually pretty good is in making reassurances to the Chinese and I, I mean, to the Taiwanese. And, and I really do think we have to double down on that. I really think is, is when the Chinese get aggressive like this. If you back off, that's the worst possible message. When you double down, the Chinese know you're serious, and that raises the stakes for them as well. And don't you, I mean, another reason why we shouldn't send American athletes to the Beijing Winter Olympics, which are in a few months. Don't yeah, you, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I just saw some reporting on it, and I think the Chinese are being very core because now, now they're talking about greatly restricting you know, yeah. foreign visitors to, to the game. and. And, you know, one obvious reason for that is, well, that that diminishes the value of boycotts, right? If mm-hmm. if foreign people and dignitaries can't come to the games and the Chinese, you know, aren't embarrassed by the boycotts. So uh, I, I don't think anybody is going to uh, be up for a, an athlete boycott of the Olympic Games. Um, but, you know, look, I mean, I think the the issue with china just gets bigger and bigger and bigger every day and and if i would fault the administration among the other things i would really fault for them is they're behind the american people on this issue and the american people want you know substantive action actually today um we're likely to get the the us economic plan the trade plan for dealing with china and uh, actually most of the reporting suggests it's going to look kind of more like um the biden trade plan which is kind of following with uh the threat of uh, of tariffs and other things, which is you mean you the know, Trump the, the Trump trade quo. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the Trump right. Yeah, sorry. 
Um, and that's kind of the status quo is people are looking, well, where's your plan? How are we moving forward on China from this administration? And we're not getting that. Well, and, and one particular asset of Taiwan and protect, again, potentially under threat uh, by the Chinese communists against the backdrop of a semiconductor chip shortage in this world right now and with automobiles and all electronics. You've got Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the largest semiconductor chip manufacturer in the world, and what the Chinese communists could potentially do uh, to uh, make the supply of chips in the United States uh, even slower than it is at present. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know that's one reason why we're, we're looking at diversity, and I think there's going to be a lot of movement cooperation on that. But it's also another reason why you really want to double down on your on your support of Taiwan. I mean, I think that 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 level of overflight actually, you know, ought to, we got a, we got a statement from the State Department and kind of finger waving wasn't even signed by Blinken, I believe. Um, that level of military activity really kind of calls for U.S. response. It's it's not inappropriate for something like that to send a U.S. carrier over there. That that just sends the kind of signal that shows we're really serious. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President, uh, Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. The book, Brutal War, Jungle Fighting in Papua New Guinea, 1942. Jim, thanks as always. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Carol Platt-Lebow for townhall.com. In Joe Biden's newest assault on Americans' privacy, he's proposing that banks be required to give the IRS information for all accounts holding more than $600. The policy is supposed to reveal tax dodging by the wealthy. But banks are already required to report transactions of $10,000 or more. It's hard to imagine how dropping the threshold all the way down to $600 is going to ensnare the rich. Instead, it will just allow vast data collection on everyone. And the IRS hasn't shown it can be trusted. Earlier this year, IRS data on thousands of taxpayers was leaked to the ProPublica website and then published. That's not all. Remember the lowest learner scandal during the Obama years when some organizations were targeted just because those in charge of the IRS disagreed with their politics? I don't want to be audited for saying this, but until the IRS has shown it won't abuse our trust... It's a terrible mistake to give it any more power over Americans' lives. I'm Carol Platt-Lebow. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.